unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. One of the major themes of India's G20 presidency, which concludes later this year, has been to advance an ambitious but just clean energy transition for the 21st century. If the world's hopes of accelerating a clean, sustainable, just, affordable, and inclusive energy transition are to come to fruition, ensuring the spread of solar power, especially to the poorest parts of the globe, will be essential. My guest on the show today is tasked with doing exactly this. Dr. Ajay Mathur is the Director General of the International Solar Alliance, a relatively new international alliance of more than 120 countries. The overarching objective of the ISA is to foster the efficient consumption of solar energy to reduce the world's dependence on fossil fuels. Dr. Mathur is the organization's chief and was formerly the Director General of the Energy and Resources Institute, also known as TERI, and the Director General of India's Bureau of Energy Efficiency. To talk more about solar energy and what it means for India and the world, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Mathur to the show for the very first time. Dr. Mathur, so good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks ever so much, Milan. It's absolutely wonderful to be here with you. Uh, I want to start with some basics, uh, and, and those include um, you know, kind of enlightening our listeners a little bit about your organization, the International Solar Alliance, or ISA. It was, as I understand it, conceived as a joint effort by India and France to mobilize efforts against climate change through the careful but systematic deployment of solar energy solutions. You know, its origins date back to COP21, which of course took place in Paris in 2015, Tell us a little bit about what is the mandate of ISA and how do you go about doing your work? Thanks very much. Uh, the International Solar Alliance, or ISA, was, as you rightly say, announced at COP21 in Paris. But at that time, the goal was how do we help countries move ahead with non-fossil fuels, particularly solar energy? And the emphasis was on the areas between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. Subsequently, we have changed the rules of the ISA, and anybody who's a member of the UN can join. As you said, we have nearly 120 countries as members. We work on making solar energy the energy source of choice in our member countries. How do we do that? We do that through, first of all, creating advocacy for solar. So how do you convince the leadership, the political leadership and the policy leadership that solar makes sense? And this includes, therefore, things like ease of doing solar, a publication we bring out every year, which ranks what countries have done on policy, what more they can do, and so on. We bring out a global solar report on technology, on markets, on investments, so that countries can take off now, learning what is the best, not what was best yesterday. Similarly, we have done pieces on manufacturing and so on. This is to convince people, leaders, policymakers, and people that solar makes sense. But then the second question they immediately ask us is, that's great, but who's going to do it? So one of the big things about the alliance is its capacity building activity. You need to make sure that there are certified technicians in countries which are going to start solar projects. 
you need to make sure that policymakers are trained. You need to make sure that bankers who are going to lend money know how to evaluate and risk assess solar uh, projects. Once you do all of this, the next question is, okay, how will I get those projects? So we help countries handhold them in the first few projects. But more importantly, this process helps us in helping them to develop the regulations, the institutions, so that solar can become large, that they can attract money. You know, remember, solar costs a lot more to begin with as compared to fossil fuels. But there are no operating costs. You know, half the cost of a coal or gas or diesel plant is the fuel. That isn't here. So 95% of the costs are capital costs. This makes getting private sector investment important. So therefore, we work with countries to see how regulations can be changed to make those changes happen. So all in all, Milan, we do a lot of things. <laughs> we do advocacy, we do capacity building, we do project management, we do regulatory, we do everything that is needed to bring solar to the front table. So, so, so this is a, is a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you next, which is uh, you have done uh, quite a number of important jobs throughout your career. As I mentioned up top, you had served previously as the director general of Terry, which is one of India's uh, most storied energy and environmental uh, think tanks, research organizations. You have run the Indian Bureau of Energy Efficiency. You had been the interim director of the Green Climate Fund during its very early foundational period. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to take this challenge on, which is to serve as the DG of the ISA. Well, one of the things, of course, is this is a new venture. And I love new ventures. You know, this is the place where you can actually make change happen and see change happening. Because of the fact that we needed to build an institution. We needed to reach out to countries. We needed to convince them. That's what helped bring his position, make it so attractive. At the end of the day, ultimately, Milan, when we all leave this world, we ask ourselves, what have we done? Have we done anything useful? I hope to answer to that question. Yes, I brought solar energy to a lot of people in the world. I mean, that is a a pretty good answer to that question. And now you're making me reevaluate some of my own life choices, I think. Uh, I want to ask you about this big milestone event that we have just uh, seen come to an end, which, of course, is the G20 Leaders Summit in in Delhi. Um, You had an op-ed that you wrote just a few days before the summit uh, took place in which you noted that the G20 heads of government assembled in India had a unique opportunity to advance the cause of renewable energy. And when you read the Delhi Declaration, which came out of the summit, uh, the G20 countries pledged to, and I want to quote here, pursue and encourage efforts to triple renewable energy capacity globally uh, by 2030. Uh, Let me just ask you, how achievable is this target to triple renewable energy by 2030? And where does solar specifically fit into this big picture? The second half of the question, the answer is more than half of the tripling of renewable energy would be through solar. The next question is, do I think it's possible? Yes, I think it's possible. It's difficult, 
but it's possible. Uh, given the fact that we are in various parts of the world already looking at renewables as being the cheapest source of electricity, although only when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, is a good move. The second is that if we see storage prices dropping in the 2023, 2024, 2025, we will start seeing solar and wind as becoming the, the energy sources of choice across the world. Why will banks fund growth in other sources of energy when carbon-free sources are cheaper? Remember, energy source, energy requirements are growing in developing countries. So two years from now, three years from now, the demand will be more. And it will be more during the day when the sun is available, and it will be more at night when the sun is not available. So we need to ensure that the prices of uh, batteries or other storages also go down. And it is ISA's view that this would happen in the next three years. So therefore, it is our view that the tripling of renewables is an achievable target. In the same piece that I just referenced, and of course, we'll link to this on the show notes, uh, you highlighted three challenges in particular that uh, you believe impede or could impede the widespread adoption of solar technology. Those three impediments are investment disparities uh, and a, a focus on large scale uh, projects and the concentration of manufacturing of, of, of solar equipment. I'm wondering if you could just walk us through each of these three. Um, tell us why you think these are the three key impediments. Milan, if you note, last year, the year before that, this year have been record years for investment into solar globally. This year, for example, we expect something of the order of $380 billion to flow into solar production, into solar capacity. That's, solar that's billion with a B. With a B. Now, this is much more than the fossil fuel sector attracted at the peak of the fossil fuel boom. That's great, except that 74% of this money goes to the OECD countries in China. All of Africa gets less than 3%. This is the first disparity that too much of the resources or not, let me put it the other way around, not enough resources are going into countries which are of the South. The second problem is that roughly two-thirds of the money that has come into uh, solar has come in for large projects, large solar farms. We haven't seen that much money coming in for solar rooftops or for solar pumps or solar cold storages or solar mini grids. So, things that you and I can see and relate to. What this has meant is that we have had a rather lopsided uh, development of the solar sector, but more importantly, the public ownership is also limited. And the third point, uh, Milan, is that we have a problem in as much as the vast concentration of the development of solar cells occurs in one or at the most two countries. 80% of the world's solar modules are produced in two countries. Why is this a problem? This is a problem because it takes a huge amount of effort 
to get those solar panels out of those countries to the rest of the world. There are supply chain constraints. These supply chain constraints led, you know, to an uptick in the prices of solar. For years, we have had a decline in solar prices that was happening. But since 2021, 2022, and now 2023, we're seeing this price rise occurring instead of price decline. This is because of supply chain constraints. It's not the price of solar panels ex factory that is increasing, but the price change in supply has led to a 20% increase in the price of solar. It, unless we address these three issues of geographical disparity in uh, investment, of the uh, large solar getting the vast amount of funding, and of the concentration of manufacturing, unless we geographically diversify manufacturing, unless we do those three things, we will not be able to move to a world where everybody has access to solar. Uh, that was a very uh, detailed uh, explanation. Let me just ask you about the third piece, right? Because you have written something uh, for ORF in which you argued uh, that, you know, look, solar is uh, now the cheapest form of new electricity for much of the world. But there are, as you just said, uh, major supply chain considerations. But chief among them is the fact that China provides over 70% of solar PV manufacturing, including 95% plus of the world's wafer production. Um, and so when we talk about supply chain resilience, obviously, um, this is something of concern. You call upon G20 countries, including India, of course, to expand solar manufacturing capacity. That will help to drive down costs but, and also make supply chains more resilient. So I guess here's my question for you. How seriously do you think the member countries of the G20 are taking this challenge? And what progress has been made thus far? You're absolutely right that today, 70% of solar modules are produced in just one country. Geographical diversification is important. And to look at how geographical diversification can happen, we broke up the supply chain into two parts. One is the sand or silica all the way to developing a solar cell. And the second is putting together all the solar cells to make the modules that you and I use. As far as the second part is concerned, the solar cells being made into the solar modules, that can happen almost anywhere. If there's adequate demand, you can do it. And we are seeing this occurring on its own. And we are seeing this occurring on its own in a few countries. We need to expand this to provide more loans. This is a, this is a, a costly venture. It requires a lot of investment capital, but it is cost effective. But this first part, which is going to all the way from silicon to solar cells, that is difficult. It is difficult because if you set up a new solar manufacturing plant for cells, it costs more than what the current cells cost. This means that a short-term incentive would be needed in order to make the cells cost competitive with those that are available in the market. Now, the number of countries that can provide this incentive are relatively we have seen that in the US, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act brought in a lot of production tax credit and manufacturing tax credits, which could be used to support solar manufacturing. And as a result of that, 
we are seeing that whereas the U.S. Uh, had about 7 gigawatt of module manufacturing capacity in about 2021, in just the eight months after the Inflation Reduction Act, what had been announced was approximately 60 gigawatts worth of U.S. solar panel factories. So you're going from 7 to 70 in just eight months. Now, I, I don't know how much of this will happen, but the scale tells you that this is going to be a massive scale. Similarly, in India, you have the production link incentive. And what they've done is, again, taken from something of the order of five or six gigawatts to something of the order of 45 gigawatts. And these are 45 gigawatts of factories that are under construction. So starting 2024 and into 2025, you would see a fair amount of diversification that would have already come in. Uh, by the way, I should note that there is a lot of capacity in other countries. We need to source it from them. And this is publicly available. You can Google it. You can see who are the manufacturers across the world and source manufacturing from the place which is closest to you. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I want to ask you one more question about the G20 before we move on to other topics. The Delhi Declaration also mentioned India's uh, initiative to establish a green hydrogen innovation center uh, that would be actually steered by your organization, uh, ISA. Uh, this leads me to sort of two related questions. Uh, number one, what role can green hydrogen play in, in helping to usher in a green transition? And number two, what is it that your organization uh, is set up to do with this? Remember that whenever we talk of solar cells or even wind, we are talking of electricity. But there are many energy needs that you and I have which are not electricity. Largely heat, but other sources as well. You need steam, you need coal to make the steam. What do we use for that? And there, the only zero carbon option can be green hydrogen. I emphasize the word green because it means that it has been made by the electrolysis of water using green electricity, you know, solar electricity, hydroelectricity, or something of that sort. So green hydrogen is the only way that we can move to a completely green energy future. What are the challenges? Well, there are challenges as far as manufacturing is concerned. If you use today's solar electricity to produce hydrogen, it costs something of the order of $5 per kg. On the other hand, if you reform natural gas, and make hydrogen out of it. Yes, it will not be carbon free, but you can do it at $2 per kg. So we need to bring down the price of green hydrogen from $5 down to somewhere in the vicinity of $2 or less. That's the first challenge. The second is, it'll have to be used in various settings, whether it is steel, whether it is cement, whether it is in your home or mine, whether it is in long-term transport like trucks, all of these places need to learn to use hydrogen. 
all the countries in the world are learning how to do this, both the production side and the consumption side. The Green Hydrogen Innovation Center, which was announced during the G20, is a way of enabling this to happen. So we put together all the information that is put together by all countries of the world so that there's one place to go to to find out what is happening in hydrogen. And an AI-based chatbot helps you find the information that you want. So everything that is on the site can be searched by the AI-based chatbot. But it goes a little bit more than that. We also need people who are trained. Milan, when I went to engineering school, which is longer ago than I even want to remember, I was taught that hydrogen is one of the most dangerous fuels. You can walk into a hydrogen fire and not know it because a hydrogen fire is invisible. We therefore need trained people to handle it. So capacity building is key. And therefore one of the things that the DHIC, the Green Hydrogen Innovation Center is doing is providing certified people through the training program. And the last thing that it will do, it's not yet doing it, is do matchmaking of projects and funders so that we can also move the actual, actually translate ideas into reality, into real projects. All in all, I think the GHIC is geared up to create a change and move hydrogen, green hydrogen, from being just something that we talk about to something that we can actually achieve. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and ask you about uh, mini grids. Uh, you had a piece recently with Brad Matson, and again, we'll link to this, in which you advocate for the adoption of clean energy-based private mini grids. And I just want to quote something you've written there, which is you say, private sector owned and operated solar mini grids are the most cost-effective and sustainable way to bring electricity for the very first time to 75% of the 675 million people worldwide who still live in darkness. Um, many of our listeners may have heard the term mini grids, but they may not know very much about them. Tell us a little bit about how do they work and why do you think they're so worthy of significant new investment? Well, the traditional way of reaching out to these people who don't have electricity is that you extend the grid. So the first thing that we did, and this was a G20 publication that we brought out, the first thing is that if you have to extend the grid by more than 10 kilometers, well, it becomes very expensive because remember the amount of electricity that is flowing across it for the first many, many years is very small. Having local solar panels with batteries allows us to meet the energy needs, the electricity needs of the people who are close that solar battery system much more cost-effective than extending. Now, remember, we are doing solar panels, we are doing batteries. This costs money. Most of the countries where there are people who don't have access to electricity are already up to here, up to their ears as far as sovereign lending and guarantees are concerned. The governments cannot borrow anymore. This means that since this is a cost-effective proposition, we need to get in the private sector. Private sector also brings in one additional benefit, and this has been 
amply showed by many, many countries, including India. Because what private sector does is they get paid only if they deliver electricity. So they focus on maintenance. This means that the solar mini grid is actually always up and running. And it keeps expanding according to the needs of the people and not remain constant at the size at which it was first made because somebody gave a grant for it. All of these things imply that solar mini-grids become the most cost-effective way to provide electricity to people who never have had it. One of the other things you go on to say is that, uh, and this is here, going to bring the conversation between mini-grids and India together, is that mini-grids can constitute an important pillar of India's overall energy strategy, right? And one of the things you note in this piece is that India has about 700 solar mini-grids, which are owned and operated um, uh, by private companies that, unlike state-run grids, are, are not subsidized, right? So they are, they are commercially viable purely based on customer payments, right, uh, w w which is a unique attribute. Um, you know, for anyone who's been following the kind of inner, uh, India energy uh, sector for a long time is very used to hearing about the broken, uh, flawed political economy of energy provision in India, right? So this is a, a, indeed a kind of refreshing bit of news. How do these mini grids avoid the usual pitfalls uh, that we've seen in India in the past? So the first issue is how on earth do we get private sector investment, which is then sure of getting a return. The way it has worked is that two states in India, UP and Bihar, brought out regulations for solar mini-grids, specifically for solar mini-grids, in which they said three things. The first thing that they said was, if you are less than a certain size, you don't need anybody's permission, just go ahead and put up the grid. That greatly reduced transactions. The second thing they said was, it is between you and the user of the electricity on how much they pay for the electricity. If the payment rates, of course, are very high, then those guys won't pay. If they're very low, you as the solar mini operator won't make money. So what it allows us to do is to establish uh, tariffs that are viable for the users. And the third thing that they said was, and this is what important to investors, they said, if the grid wants to take over the solar mini grid, if the grid extends and wants to take it over, here is a formula. Here is how you calculate what would be the compensation that would be provided. All of these things have provided the kind of confidence that the private sector has needed to come in into this area. And they've done very well. One company, uh, has even, it's, all of these are Indian companies, but one of the companies has done so well that it has now got equity investment from a Japanese major, which helps it grow and do more and more mini grids in the years to come. I want to just ask you a slightly uh, broader question, uh, I guess you could say, about India's green energy ecosystem. Um, there was a recent report I read which found that more than 90% of India's solar capacity has been installed since the year 2015-2016, give or take. And that is a pretty dramatic increase in such a short period of time. Um, is this kind of exponential growth sustainable in your view? Oh, yes. Remember, in India and in other developing countries, 
the demand for electricity is still growing. We have a huge amount of people who do not have access to adequate electricity. What this implies is that we need to put in more capacity. And the question is, do you put coal capacity or do you put in renewable energy? What we see is that the vast bulk of new capacity addition that has occurred is renewable. This has really occurred since the prices of renewables have fallen, and there has been a huge emphasis on growth of renewables. The next uh, exponential increase will occur when storage prices are low enough. You know, even today in England, uh, a few months ago, the railway energy management company issued a tender for round-the-clock firm electricity-based renewables. And they got bids which had solar plus wind plus a storage. And the prices they got were in the vicinity of approximately uh, something of the order of four cents, five cents, five cents per kilowatt hour. New coal capacity, which has also been now commissioned because it was being under construction for a long time, new coal capacity is at six, six and a half cents per kilowatt hour. What this means is that even today, solar plus wind plus storage is already cost effective. Now, we fully realize that there will be limited number of places where all three of these can be done. Therefore, you look at solar plus storage, you look at wind plus storage, as to become cost effective as well. But as that happens, you would see again a sharp increase in the curve for the uptake of renewable energy. So, so, so there's one puzzle built in here, which someone like me who is not steeped in this world uh, doesn't quite understand, and it's the following. What accounts for the fact that by some estimates, uh, renewables account for roughly a quarter or so of installed power capacity in India, but only around 13% of India's electricity generation. What are the various factors that explain the gap between the two numbers? I think the most important issue is that the amount of time when the sun is available is relatively limited. You know, we are in the tropics, so we have got the sun available for a long period of time, but it's still only 10 hours. It's 10 out of 24 hours. The sun is not available. And you can't generate electricity when the sun is not available. Similarly, when the wind blows, then it's very difficult to look at sites where the wind blows all the time. It's 30%, 40% of the time. A good part of the time, there is no availability of the sun or of the wind. That's why storage becomes essential. And, and just to, you, you, you've talked a lot about uh, driving down the price of solar. Uh, and, and and there's evidence clearly that has happened. What is it going to take to drive down the price of storage? Because that seemed to be a clear, a clear impediment, at least in the Indian case, but presumably in many others as well. Uh, we have seen the price of storage come down by about 90% since 2008. So in the last 15 years, we have seen a 90% reduction. Right now, it's somewhere in the vicinity of $130, $140 per kilowatt hour of battery capacity. Remember, this it means charging and discharging a large number of times. 
once it comes to below a hundred dollars, that means a thirty percent increase more, then it will be cost effective with the poorest solar capacity and with reasonable wind capacity. But as I mentioned earlier, when you do solar plus wind plus storage, it's already cost effective. This is what makes storage a fascinating area because you're seeing on the one hand, we, we talk about lithium ion batteries and lithium not being available. Now you're finding lithium in places where you never thought because now you're looking for it. Earlier, geological surveys did not look for lithium. The second is because of competitive pressures, the amount of lithium per battery is decreasing. It's about 10 to 15% less than what it was in 2008. And third, we are also looking at a world of non-lithium batteries. We're looking at sodium ion batteries. Sodium is far more geographically dispersed and available than is lithium. We are looking at vanadium redox batteries, which are like flow batteries. So you keep on putting in stuff into it like you, and they keep on producing electricity. So these not of the kind batteries also have a future. Let me just bring this conversation to an end by asking you a little bit about the future. Um, you have laid out a pretty ambitious agenda for yourself, for your organization. Um, clearly, the G20 was an important, uh, perhaps catalytic moment. As you look out, say, the next one to three years, uh, what are some of the important uh, goals that you've set for yourself as an organization to try and really advance the cause of solar energy, not just in India, of course, but uh, around the world, particularly in the poorest countries. You know, what are some of your top priorities as you look ahead? So, Miller, uh, there are three priorities. The first priority which gets people involved in solar is having at least one demo project. This is a pilot project that shows that the Technology works and it shows that the business model works. It is sustainable. That is the first part. The second is this for replication needs money to come in and therefore convince the countries, help them with the regulatory support that they need in order for change to happen. And the third is that they themselves set up large scale replication programs so that with the rules in place, with the demos in place, this becomes an attractive destination. We hope that this is achieved in the 55 countries who are today at the bottom of the energy pyramid. My guest on the show this week is Dr. Ajay Mathur. He is the Director General of the International Solar Alliance, an international alliance of more than 120 countries. Dr. Mathur, uh, I have never heard anybody explain with such passion and, and clarity uh, uh, the role that solar is going to play in this coming green energy transition. Um, you and your organization are absolutely at the heart of this work. Um, thanks so much for taking some time to, to share some of your updates with, with all of us and our, and our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much, Milan. Thank you very much to you and your team for making this happen. Thanks. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, 
visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.